Do y'all remember your first, like, if I were to ask you if you remember your first love, would you have remembered who that was? Maybe it was in middle school, before that, after that, who knows? Do you remember the first time you drove a car? Do you remember um, maybe the first time you went out to eat at a really fancy restaurant? Do you remember the first time, if you're married, that you saw your spouse? Right? I remember the first time I saw Madison. I also remember our first date. Something you need to know about our relationship is that Madison asked me out on our first date because I'm a catch. I'll give you context. That was about 25 pounds ago, so it makes a little bit more sense. But she asked me out on our first date. I remember our first date. I loved it. And uh, uh, we had started dating, and we were both heading off to college. She was heading to Baylor, and I was heading to UTSA, and so we had a very finite amount of time that we could be together dating before being long distance. And uh, Madison had a, a lot of firsts that she wanted to do that summer that she had made a list of things she wanted to do. And on one of those things was going to a fast, casual Mexican restaurant called Freebirds. She really wanted to go there for some reason. I don't get the hype. I'm sure it's not bad food. If you have any affiliations with Freebirds, that's great. But I remember we went and um, what happened during this early portion of us dating, like the honeymoon phase, right, where it's all romance and everything, is, I don't know if it was the queso or the burrito I had, but something that I ate got inside of me and wanted to expel everything that was inside of me. Do I need to go into greater detail? And so literally, and it wasn't just one thing, it was like 10 to 14 days worth of me Early on in our dating, dating career, our dating time, I would have to be within walking distance of a bathroom. Do I need to go into greater detail? Perfect. Um, I've since found out, it's funny, I didn't share this earlier, but I've since found out there was a student actually, um, years later since then, that was telling me about this one time he got really sick and he said he had, he had heard, like he went to the hospital and he said it was an E. coli thing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, where did you go? And he said, I remember I went to Freebirds and I said... Did you happen to go in the summer of 2015? And he said, actually, I did. And I said, oh my gosh, I had that too. And so for 10 to 14 days, when we're in like the honeymoon phase, the first portion is just me running to the bathroom, waddling to the bathroom over and over and over again, right? It was not romance inducing. It was not romantic in any way, but she stuck with me. And I know firsts are a big deal because I hope that she didn't get the impression that she was always going to be putting up with my junk, but... I would hope that today she would say in our marriage, she's still not putting up with my junk, but the, the impression that that first gives is a lasting one at that, right? Because first give us an insinuation, first give us an impression of what the rest is going to look like. Firsts are a big deal. Firsts are important. That's why we try to make good first impressions, right? Because a bad first impression is hard to get out of the typecast of. If you make a good one, you're tending to give a good insinuation of who you are, Right? First, show us a lot. And today, as we are in this series on revival, we're going to take a look at a really important first in Scripture. An important first as to what it means when we gather together and how we live our lives as we pursue Jesus. And it involves a famous piece of history regarding a man named Abraham. See, Abraham is considered to be the father of our faith. He is the father of our faith. He is a man who was previously known as Abram, and God had called this one specific man to leave his father's land of Tehran and to go to a new land that God would set up for him, to go and listen and just be obedient. 
He, God, God didn't give him a map. He just said, go, and I'll tell you where to go. And Abram, in obedience and in faith, went. Abram was a faithful man. Scripture says his faithfulness is credited as righteous unto him because he had learned to listen to the voice of God. Abram, at this point, his name was Abram, he had actually, at one point, God made a covenant with him, a deal, a promise, a testament with Abram. And he told him, you will be the father of many nations. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on a beach. And through the nations that you will father, I will bless the world. What an incredible promise given to Abram. And in that covenant, he says, no longer will you be Abram, but you will be Abraham. And he is the father of our faith. Told he's going to father many nations. The only tricky part about Abraham and his wife Sarah at this point is they don't even have a single child. And to put it bluntly, biologically speaking, they're very old. It didn't make sense for them to be able to produce offspring because of their age. And so God is setting up supernatural, miraculous intervention. A way in which the only way his promise is going to happen is if God shows up. But that takes time and it takes obedience learning to trust God. Abraham, under his own power and influence, tried to rush God's promise. With the encouragement of his wife, he slept with his concubine, and they had an illegitimate son named Ishmael. Ishmael wasn't the son that God wanted to give to Abraham and Sarah, and so Ishmael eventually had to leave with his mother Hagar, and Ishmael actually became the father of many of Israel's sworn enemy nations because it wasn't done God's way. God's way takes time and it takes trust. And eventually in Genesis 21, we see that God does fulfill his promise and bless Abraham and Sarah with a son named Isaac. And it's here in this context of a man who I'm sure is overjoyed at seeing the fulfillment of a promise come to fruition that we get the context of the scripture we're going to be looking at today. It's found in Genesis 22. It says this, starting in verse 2. Then God said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them together went. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. Then Isaac said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And so he said, here I am. The angel said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And so Abraham went 
and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. God, I pray today that you would give us humble hearts to receive your word. God, I pray for open ears to hear you clearly this morning. And God, I pray for the necessary steps taken in action as we follow you and pursue you in obedience, God. Speak now. We're listening. God, we're ready to move as your Holy Spirit leads us. It's in your name that we pray. We're studying revival in this series and what it means. It's our word for the year as a church. And obviously it's something we plead for and pray for in our community, in our homes, in our cities, in our nation, in the world. We pray for revival. And revival makes a great lyric in a song. Revival has connotations of excitement when we come in here in this room. It is an exciting idea and it is a good thing. I'm not trying to discourage any of that. But the outcome of revival is beautiful. The means of revival is oftentimes really, really messy. The outcome of revival is an incredible thing being brought back to life. The means of revival means you have to be around something that's died. A couple weeks ago, we had a, a gospel invitation in our middle school ministry. And we had 21 students come forward and say yes to Jesus for the first time. Come on, that's worth celebrating. 21. That is the most I've ever seen in one invitation. It's teenagers, middle schoolers saying, I trust you, Jesus. I want you to, to rule in my life. That's an incredible revival moment. That is the best miracle you will ever see. Someone who is lost is now found. That is a supernatural thing taking place. That is the aspects, the outcome of a revival right there. But I can also tell you for years, I have been on many phone calls, many meetings, hearing of students threatening their life. Students harming themselves, their friends harming themselves of abuse taking place. And having to, with our small group team, walk alongside of them, walk alongside their families, bring in CPS, bring in law enforcement, bring in schools to try to protect these kids because that is an aspect of death taking place, of spiritual death. And we celebrate the revivals, absolutely. But for those 21 to take place, it takes a long time, uh, time of being around decay and dying to see that revival. We like to think that revival is the city of Nineveh. Hundreds of thousands being saved when Jonah goes and tells them to repent, right? That is the outcome of revival. But the process of getting to there is being in the belly of a whale for three days. We like to think of revival as Lazarus coming out of the grave. The means of getting there is dressing your brother in grave clothes and smelling his body rot. We like to think of revival as Easter Sunday. An empty tomb. The means of getting to that Sunday morning is Friday night when you're afraid for your life. Revival has beautiful consequences, but revival is a messy, messy, and sometimes very dark place. And so when we come in here and we seek revival, I love that. I absolutely encourage that. We ought to be. But if we seek revival, and we're not around something that's dead? Are we just trying to make something good better? Or are we trying to be intercessors saying, I'm going to stand in the gap on behalf of this thing that has died and plead with the God of the heavens that he would raise it? 
See, in order for us to genuinely seek revival, we need to be able to smell death, to see death around us, to be in the middle of it. If we're going to pray for revival and be distant from it, we might not be where God's calling us to be. And revival is going to take true and genuine worship. When enough people with one heart come together to glorify God and to seek revival, willing to do anything that it takes to serve whomever, that's when revival takes place. When enough people, enough communities, enough believers say, I'm going to go wherever God calls me to and worship, we see revival takes place. It's here in Genesis 22, we find Abraham, I'm sure, in the worst position he's ever felt in his life. Imagine with me, earlier he had seen the birth of his son. This is Isaac. The word, the promise that God had given him about being a father, wrapped in flesh. His son, the fulfillment of God's word. I'm sure he's overjoyed. He's like, I can trust you, God. I knew I could trust you when you called me to leave. And now I can trust you even through miraculous intervention. God, I believe in you. I'm sure he's overjoyed. But then we get to Genesis 22 and the very same voice that had told him he would be a father of nations is now saying to kill your only son. Imagine his fear. Imagine his doubt. Abraham learned to be obedient. And now that voice is saying to kill the very thing he gave him. I'm sure he is incredibly upset. And it's here where we see an important first in scripture. See, Abraham says on this hike up a mountain, I'm going to take my son and we're going to go worship up at the top. The important thing here is that is the first time in scripture you see the word worship. It gives an impression. It gives an insinuation of what worship is supposed to look like. Of what the rest of worship is going to look like. It involves sacrifice. See, if I was the author and I wanted to have a good feeling about worship, right? I wanted to encourage and all of that. I would have probably put worship when Adam woke up and saw his wife for the first time, Eve. That would have made sense for there to be worship. God, I worship you, right? Naturally. Maybe Noah, after he gets off the boat, after 40 days and nights of chaos and flooding and death all around him, and he steps foot on dry land and sees a rainbow and a promise that God is never going to flood the earth again, that, that would have made sense for him to say, I'm going to worship you now. Maybe when Abram wakes up from his slumber and has a new name and a covenant made with God and, and, and a trust with God, that makes sense for there to be, I'm going to worship. But God is specific with introducing us this idea of worship when it comes to Abraham offering his son. It tells us what worship looks like. There's no keyboard. There's no instruments. There's no worship leaders. There is a long, uncomfortable, and obedient hike. That's the insinuation of worship. That's the context of true worship. Even the mountain that they go to offer his son up on. It's called Mount Moriah. Moriah has a twofold meaning. In one meaning, it is the place of teaching. In the second meaning, it is the place of worship. God quite literally teaching us what worship looks like. Worship isn't just when we come in here together and everything is primed for us to be encouraged. The lights are cool. The band sounds phenomenal. The teaching is exactly where you need to be at. And it's relative to you with some funny jokes here and there. 
where everything is primed and we've got good snacks and coffee and we see friends and we look good and the kids got here on time. That's not all worship is. The context of true worship here is in the context of sacrifice, literal human sacrifice. That's why Paul later writes in Romans 12, and he says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. The context of sacrifice. And as an encouragement to us today, I feel as though we often miss it when we relegate worship to the mountaintop moments the victories and celebrations. When we see worship as a long, uncomfortable, and obedient hike up a mountain. Imagine Abraham. Put yourself in his shoes. If you're a parent, this is fairly easy. You're in no rush to get to the top. You're not in a hurry. I'm sure Abraham is memorizing every detail of his son. He's old enough to know what's going on. He's old enough to know what they're going to do without him knowing that he's going to be the lamb. I'm sure Abraham is trying to memorize the way in which his body moves, the sound of his voice. Isaac asks, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, the, God, uh, the Lord will provide, God will provide. Scripture gives us no context to say that God spoke with Abraham secretly and said, you're going to have a ram in the thicket. I believe Abraham is just trying to be faithful. It's his nature to believe the best. But still, He's obeying and walking towards the death of his son on a long, uncomfortable, and obedient hike. God is trying to teach us where worship, true worship, comes from. You want revival? Revival is going to take place when we understand the depth of worship. Worship comes from a deep, deep-rooted place of obedience, a deep-rooted place of obedience unto sacrifice and to say, God, whatever you call me to, I will choose to worship you. And worship, although it means a lot when everything is going well, it means the most when you have all the reason around you to not believe that God is good, but to still choose to trust and obey on a long, uncomfortable, and obedient hike. My wife and I, we've been on a long, uncomfortable, and obedient hike. 49 weeks ago this Sunday, I preached a message on Adoption Sunday. I preached a message about adopting the spiritual and physical, literal orphans around us. So what we're called to do as an act of worship. One of the final things I did that day was brought up our foster son. My son brought him up onto this platform, and I held him, and I prayed over him, and I prayed over our congregation as an encouragement. And I remember even saying in my message and my notes, I have them here where I said, we're believing for a miracle for him to stay in our home, for him to be a permanent son. We're believing for that. But even if that's not the outcome, I'm going to choose to believe God is good. A few weeks after I preached that message, we had a court hearing. I'll share with you a little bit of my story, and I don't share this with you to ask for your pity. I don't share this with you just to wallow in my sorrow, but as an example of what obedience looks like and the pain that it can bring. A few weeks after that, we had a court hearing. We had a CPS agent that 
we had a relationship with. She had been to our home. She, she was legally responsible for Luca, the, the boy that we had had in our home. She was presiding over his case. She had been over many times. We liked her. She, she was, in fact, very influential in his case, and she had a lot of say and sway into where he would end up being. And he, she often would be candid with us and say that she believes this is the best place for him in our home. A few weeks after I preached, we've been trying to get a hold of her to figure out what's going to happen in this court hearing, what we need to be prepared for. We couldn't get a hold of anything. We couldn't get a hold of her. We couldn't get a hold of a supervisor. We couldn't get a hold of the offices. We made, I remember in one week, we made 20 calls. And as you hear me share this, I am not dissing or trying to blame CPS or make, if, if you have any affiliations, I, I pray over you and I bless you. Absolutely. But this is our story. We find out on the day of the court hearing, we go to the Zoom meeting and we find out that our CPS agent isn't there. And we grab another computer, we Google her name only to find out she had passed away. No one had decided to tell us. Google told us. We found an obituary. The woman that was now representing our case was very misinformed, and I believe she was well-intentioned, very misinformed about a lot of crucial details because she had had no relationship with the case prior to. And she told the judge her opinion and her thoughts based off of very incorrect information and we couldn't appeal in that moment or speak up. And the judge made his decision based off of misinformation. Now, I don't know if the accurate information was given and if he would have made a different one. I only know what actually took place. And we were told in that hearing that he was going to be removed from our home, that he would be removed and placed into another person's home, a distant relative. And I know some of y'all are listening and you have, uh, you have some knowledge of the foster system and you may be telling me, wow, reunification is the goal. And I completely agree with you. Reunification is the goal. I understand the psychological aspects. I understand the statistics. I get it. I went through the training. I went through all of it, the paperwork, the interviews, all of it. I get it. Absolutely. We were registered for a foster to adopt case. Everyone that had told us anything about this case said this was the most clean cut case they had ever seen of just straight adoption. It makes the most sense. And I ask for reunification. Is it reunification if he's being taken from the only home he's ever known? The moment he had left the womb, quite literally everyone in his family had left. I was the first man to ever hold him. My wife was the first woman aside from a medical professional to hold him. I felt his tremors as he had opioids running through his system. The worst case Krista Santa Rosa had ever seen of an opioid exposure in a child as they weaned him off of it with morphine. We were there. Family wasn't, and I hold no ill will towards them at all. We prayed for them every day. Is that necessary, necessarily reunification in that case? Maybe, maybe not. I'm not going to give you an answer. But the letter of the law says that he was going to be removed. And we had to be obedient unto that and pray. How can you choose to see the goodness of God when you're giving him up to someone who's never held him, loved him, met him, didn't even know he was alive for the majority of his life? But because she shares a fraction of his blood that they get a better say. This is where the system is flawed, but you have to go with it. Statistically speaking, I know that me being willing to give him up isn't, has the potential for him not to have a better life. Statistically speaking, there's, there's a better chance for him to actually enter back into the foster system because there's no father figure around. Statistically speaking, the person that's taking care of him 
won't be alive to witness his 18th birthday. That's the facts. Statistics say that. But we have to be obedient to what God is calling us to and to what the law says and to pray for and bless everyone in part of it. How do you get ready for your child leaving? How do you get ready for that? The trainings say to love them as if they're your own, but the trainings also say to get ready to leave them if they have to go. How can you do that? It's a dichotomy. And January 12th was the worst day of my life. You see, I had been making calls and trying to figure out when they were gonna come take him because they'd given us no warning. I made a call one week and they said in 36 hours we'll be there, we already bought the tickets, has no one told you? No. And thus began the worst day of my life. How do you get ready that night? Family had come over and they had said their goodbyes. They had held him, prayed over him, declared God's blessings over him, felt his skin, let him crawl all over him, and then left and allowed us to have our time together as a family. Just under a year we had had him. The hospital gave him a name. It was just felt like one from the book. So we named him Luca to give him some personal touch. His family wasn't there ever. He was our light. That's what Luca means. And so that night we got ready for him to leave. My wife had packed all his stuff up with some friends that day. That night we fed him spaghetti. He made an absolute mess. It was incredible. I took as many photos as I could have. And then we gave him his last bubble bath. We put the, the bubbles on his head for the last time. We gave him a beard for the last time. We watched him play for the final time. How, how do you do that? Knowing that the time you have is finite unto hours. We put him in his favorite pajamas with triceratops on him. And we did what we would always do all but three nights I can think of. I held him as my wife read him Winnie the Pooh and sang over him. And then we prayed over him, his family, and everyone involved in his case by name. We put him in his crib for the final time. And then we couldn't even leave the room without just weeping. <laughs> what do you do? CPS said they'll be there at 4 a.m. What do you do for the next five hours, six hours? There's no TV show you can watch. So we did what we thought we could do. And we wrote down everything I wanted him to know in his life. I wrote from his father's perspective. My wife wrote from his mother's perspective. And I wrote down how I wanted him to know and trust our God. I wrote down how I wanted him to work hard and to be a man of integrity and honor. I wrote down how I wanted him to treat others and to be honorable. I wrote down how I wanted him to treat women, how to always pay for the tab to open the car door. What do you write down in a finite amount of time everything you want them to know in their life? And we put it in his stuff and we pray that one day he'll read it, not knowing if that will ever happen. All the while, we are on a long, uncomfortable, and obedient hike up a mountain in obedience, knowing God has called us to this, trusting God in his goodness, and believing that there would be a ram in the thicket somewhere. I'm waiting that entire evening for a phone call from CPS that says, hey, scratch it, it makes sense for him to stay here. You've opened your home to the distant family. They can come and stay as long as they want to. They can have a relationship, but let's have, let's have them stay with two young people who have the community and resources to take care of them. That makes sense. That's what I was waiting for. Never happened. We wake him up for the final time. We carried him around our home that we had renovated to allow kids to feel safe in. 
We walked him around and we prayed over him. And then we just held him on the couch with a fire in the fireplace, waiting for the headlights to turn into the driveway. Again, I was waiting when they came out of the car to come up to the door and to say, it's fine, he can stay. But they came up to the door at 4.45. They opened the door and they said, it's time. And so I went and packed all of his stuff up in the car so my wife could spend now more seconds holding him, trying to feel his heartbeat, feeling his skin, trying to memorize his face, his bright blue eyes. This is my son for all intents and purposes. And we brought him out to the car. We gave them our car seat. And we gave him to them. And they said, and I mean no ill will here, and I'm not kidding. They said, actually, can you show us how to put him in the car seat? We don't know. As his parent, how do you do that? Knowing that this is all the evidence around for it not being the way to go. And all the while this evening, we had been building an altar out of obedience for what God had called us to do. We had climbed the mountain and we were at the top. And as Abraham lifted the knife to slaughter his son in obedience because God had asked him to do it, the very thing God had given him, I remember hearing the voice of God tell me, say yes to this case. As loud as I heard him say, you're going to marry that woman. I heard him say, say yes to this case. And I said, yes, God, we will do this. Where's the ram in the thicket? It's not here. And so as what felt like symbolically me holding the knife high, it felt like we plunged it down when we buckled the seatbelt and closed the car door and they drove off. We have never seen him since. We've not. We've seen him in photos shared on Facebook. There's no resolution to the story. There's no pretty bow wrapped up. This is obedience. This is listening to God. It doesn't escape the pain. In fact, we're still in this. It's been since January. We've been in grief counseling and marriage counseling. I had my birthday this past week and I told my wife it was supposed to be a great day. I told her I hate today. It feels hollow. We've decided that we're not going to be here Christmas morning because we can't bear the pain of it. This is what it looks like. This is what God calls you to sometimes. And I remember trying to lead out of this and trying to be a youth pastor and encourage our students one Wednesday, a few weeks afterwards. And I was in worship and I told God, I said, I'm so mad at you right now. How could you make me feel this way? I hate how I feel. And I remember him telling me in the depth of my soul, deep into a place where only I could hear it. I heard him say, have you forgotten? I know exactly how you feel. There was no ram in the thicket for Jesus. And he offered it up out of love for you and I. This is where true worship comes from. Because no, it's not fun. It's not easy in any shape of that word. But it is worth it. There's no resolution to the story right now. There might not be one in this lifetime. One day, 
God says he'll make all things new and I have to trust that word that it will be restored. But that's where we're at right now. And I'm having to choose to declare the goodness of God in my life. The goodness of God exactly where I am and to still pray for the people that I really don't want to pray for. When all of the evidence around me is for me to believe in my flesh that God is not good, I'm choosing to declare and to will my soul into belief that God is still good and I trust his word and he will make all things new one day, if not today, I will trust that it will be restored. And what I can tell you is this, as difficult and as much as I hate the process, even as a pastor, the sweetest moments of connection with my God have been in this season of worship. Because God has promised that we won't escape the pain, but that we will never be alone. And God calls us all in obedience to worship. At some level, we have a calling to worship. And obedience sacrifice goes hand in hand with worship. So I'm going to challenge y'all today with something. Y'all have all have a card on your seats and a pen or a pencil. Even right now, as I was speaking, the Lord might be stirring something inside of you. Something that he's calling you to offer to him and to let go of. Early on when we had Luca in our home, I wrote down on a wallet because of a, on a, on a piece of uh, notebook paper and I put it in my wallet um, because of a prayer moment that had happened early on and I remember writing down I believe the Lord told me to write this down I said he is not my son he is yours I wrote that and said God he's your son and I kept that with me in my wallet and what that did is it allowed me to have a perspective that I don't regret having because every moment was cherished at that point because I knew that at any moment that offering could be asked to give up, uh, up on as I'm speaking, the Lord might be giving you thoughts of things that you need to offer up to him. He might not be calling you to sacrifice it and to, to kill that dream or desire, but he may just be calling you to open-handed offer it to him to see what he would have done with it. Maybe for you, it's, it, it's a pride issue. Maybe for you, it's a business. It's a dream. Maybe for you, it is your kids. I don't know what it is. But I know that the Lord might be giving you some stirrings and some thoughts. So I'm going to challenge you to write it down. And we have built a mock altar up here. And as you feel led, and I'm going to say this, I don't want you to feel comfortable in this moment. But as you feel led as a symbolic gesture of you taking a long, uncomfortable and obedient hike, where we're going to worship, you come up here and you lay that card on the altar if you're willing to give it to God. And here's the deal too. I'm okay if no one does that. If you're not ready to do that, that's okay. Hold on to it. And I want you to ask the Lord, God, help me with this. Maybe you need to keep it. I'm okay with that too. Our prayer team is going to be available. You can come to them to ask for them to intercede on your behalf, to pray over you, to pray with you, to process with you. And then we're going to worship. And as y'all feel led to, you worship. Normally we try to set this up for you to feel comfortable. But in the spirit of true obedience today, I want you to feel led even if you're uncomfortable and to move in whatever the Holy Spirit's calling you to. So God, I thank you for today. God, I thank you for the opportunity you give us to worship. And God, right now I pray for humble hearts, listening, 
listening not just to the physical words you're giving me, God, but to you as you speak in their, in their heart right now. God, I pray that they would be able to move on that. And God, that your Holy Spirit would make it evident to them exactly what you're calling them to right now. And that God, they would have the bravery to move in that and to trust in obedience what you're calling them to. And that would be their act of worship, God. And God, I pray we would see revival flow from obedience unto whatever it takes as we choose to worship you.